Amen. If you will stand as you are able for the reading of our word this morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. And when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. It is so good to be with each of you on this special All Saints Day. Uh, we were discussing uh, before the service began, uh, next to Christmas and Easter, this is really one of the most meaningful worship times of the year for all of us as we gather together to remember the cloud of witnesses, or as uh, Bishop Pennell used to refer to it as the balcony people who are among us who are a part of the communion of saints. Uh, thank you, Allison, for reading our lesson. Grateful to Tom and Julie Turner for their presence on video and sharing their gifts with us and with the ensembles that have gathered together. Isn't it wonderful to hear all uh, these voices together, multi-generational choir, the unclouded day, we're grateful. This story of the fish and loaves is the only miracle of Jesus that you can find in all four gospel accounts. It's the only one. In fact, in addition to these four stories, there are also other, there are two other stories, the feeding of the 4,000 that are also found. So there's a collection of six such multiplication stories in the combined four gospels. And I think that suggests that this kind of press, this kind of coverage accents the significance, the importance of this event in the mind of the early church and certainly in the mind of the 21st century church as well. It's interesting if you back up just a few verses from what Allison read that you discover the context of this story is one of deep grief and bereavement. In the verses immediately preceding the text, we read of the death of John the Baptist. You remember that, John the Baptist who may have been Jesus' cousin, who actually baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, that John the Baptist at one point paid the supreme sacrifice 
for a moral stance that he made against Herod. Herod had married his brother's sister. And John the Baptist could not keep his mouth shut. And because of his stance, there was hell to pay. He lost his head for his stance. And verse 13 begins, Now when Jesus heard about this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place to be by himself. So the context is grief. Jesus is troubled. Jesus is distressed by the news, partly because I think he's increasingly becoming aware that a similar fate awaits him in Jerusalem. And so what does he do? He gets away. He retreats. He needs a little space. He needs some solitude. He needs some downtime to be with God. It's interesting that such withdrawal for Jesus is not unusual. It's a part of the rhythm of his life and really of our lives. In fact, there's a recurring phrase in the New Testament that says, and Jesus often withdrew to a lonely place where he prayed. There's a place on the northwestern shore of Galilee. I've been there. Some of you have been there. We're going in February. It's just a stone's throw from Capernaum, which was headquarters for the gospel ministry. You'll recall that Jesus owned no home of his own, but headquarters for the gospel ministry was at the house of St. Peter in Capernaum. There's a spot just a stone's throw away from Capernaum called Eremos, which in the Greek language means lonely place. I've been there. It was Jesus' getaway. A beautiful sight on the bank of the Galilean lake overlooking the hills, and this was the place where Jesus went for prayer. This was the place where Jesus removed himself from the crowded life in times of stress and sorrow and pain, sometimes alone and sometimes with a handful of friends. And yet on this occasion, as soon as Jesus docks the boat, He's surrounded, he's engulfed by a needy mob of people. And personally, I love verse 14. Listen to this. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them, and he cured their sick. I think there's actually two miracles in this text, not just the multiplication of the fish and loaves, but the compassion of Jesus for the crowd. This in spite of his own need and pain, he is willing, always willing, to be interrupted. Jesus does not have a do not disturb sign on his boat. And when he sees the need, there's compassion. It reminds me of the story of the rich young ruler. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Mark chapter 10, verse 21, when Jesus looked at him, he loved him. That's so Jesus. He doesn't give him the evil eye. He doesn't give him the judgmental, jaundiced glance. He has compassion on the man. And the word compassion literally means to be moved in the inward parts, to be moved. Robert Frost said, there was never any heart truly great and generous that was not also tender and compassionate. Fred Beekner, one of our favorite theological writers, says compassion is sometimes the fatal capacity for feeling what it's like to live inside somebody else's skin. 
compassion is the knowledge that there can never really be peace and joy for me until there is peace and joy for you too. Compassion for Jesus, however, is not just a noun, it's a verb. Compassion for us is not simply a feeling, it's a doing. It's not just an emotion, it's an action. And so when Jesus saw it, when he saw the need, he did something about it. I was reading this past week, as many of you did, about the shooting in Pittsburgh. And by the way, I want to thank you for those of you who have brought cards today. The basket will be across the narthex at the connections desk. We're writing cards to our neighbors in Pittsburgh and these blankets. Thank you to our Wednesday women who knit these blankets. There are 11 of them here that are going to be taken to Pittsburgh to share with the families of those who lost their lives a week ago Saturday. The man who did the shooting was himself wounded and after being apprehended by the police was taken to Allegheny General Hospital in Pittsburgh. When they took him into the emergency room and began treating him, others in the hospital heard him shouting these words, I want to kill all the Jews. Three of the medical team that treated him in triage were Jewish. The president of the hospital, Dr. Jeffrey Cohen, is a member of the Tree of Life Synagogue. He went to see the shooter after the procedure. Who are you? asked the killer. I'm Dr. Cohen, the head of the hospital. I came to see about you to help you with your pain. And as the doctor left the room, the FBI agent who was guarding the man said to the doctor, I don't know that I could have done that. To which Cohen replied, you could if you walked in my shoes. Oh, I need me some shoes <laughs> like that. <laughs> Jesus had those shoes. And he wants us to wear them too. Later, when Dr. Cohen was asked about his compassion, do you know what he said? He said, I was inspired by the influence and grace of a certain African-American congregation in Charleston, South Carolina. Compassion. It's always a miracle. As night began to fall there in that remote place, the disciples were rightly concerned, weren't they? Here in the middle of nowhere, this remote, deserted place, there may have been as many as 15,000 if you include the women and children in the count. Out here at this deserted place with the hour late and the people famished, the disciples assess the situation. They have a little come to Jesus with Jesus. And it's interesting, the advice that they offer him. This is fascinating. Teacher, they say, this is not exactly, but this is Revised Chapel. Teacher, you need to have the benediction now. Some of you have felt that way before in this service. You need to let these people go. You need to have the blessing and benediction. Send them away so that they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. It's interesting to me they don't at first come asking Jesus for his guidance. They come with their own solution. And I don't know about you, but let me confess that too often I pray like that. Lord, I don't know if you're aware of it, but we're having a hard time. 
It's a difficult situation. We're between a rock and a hard place. Here's what you need to do. Fill in the blank. Amen. You ever pray like that? They assess the situation, and here's the conclusion. Send them away. We don't have it within us. Let them fend for themselves. And Jesus says, stop. You give them something to eat. Sometimes we get in a pickle in the church, and we're waiting for Jesus to do something, and it turns out that Jesus may be waiting on us. You give them something to eat. The command of our Lord implies, implies that the disciples have it within them to do something. And watch their response. Lord, we don't have anything. Lord, we have nothing, nothing but five loaves and two fish. Pause it there. Five loaves and two fish, it's not much, but it's not nothing. That's something. How often we allow the fact that we can't do everything keep us from doing anything. And if you're like me, sometimes we have a bad habit of minimizing what we have, poor mouthing our own gifts as though it doesn't matter whether we share or not. It matters to Jesus. The key point, I think, for me in the story is that Jesus is not asking disciples for what they don't have to give. He's simply saying, bring me what you have. You may think it's little. You may think it's nothing. It's insignificant or trivial, inconsequential. But little is much when God is in it. With a few biscuits and some sardines, watch what Jesus does. He takes the fish and the loaves, and Jesus looks up to God, looks up to heaven, blesses and breaks the bread. That sound familiar? It's Eucharist. And gives it to his disciples, and they share it with the people. Here's what he does. Jesus always does this. Jesus consecrates, and we get to serve. Notice I said get to serve. And there's enough for everybody. Jesus blesses, and we become a part of the blessing. And there's enough for everybody with leftovers to spare. Twelve, twelve baskets full? What does that mean? How many disciples are there? Twelve. There's enough left over after they serve to fill their own need as well. It reminds me, and I think this is intentional, it's kind of an allusion to the Exodus story, where after the Hebrew slaves exit Egypt from slavery, they're out in the wilderness for 40 years, they get hungry and thirsty, God strikes a rock and produces water, and then gives manna from heaven. But notice in the manna that God gives in that story, there's always only enough for the day. But in the bread that Jesus breaks and offers, there's a surplus. There's an abundance. It was Isaiah who said, when the Messiah comes, when the kingdom, when the age of the kingdom comes, there'll be an abundance of food and wine, and everybody will eat and have enough with leftovers to spare. 
I think that's why the four gospels cover this story, because it's the church's way of saying, that man who's breaking the bread, that's him. That's the one we've been waiting for. That's Jesus. He's the Messiah. The kingdom is among us. That's fascinating to me that in John's version of this story, it says that the disciples actually got the fish and loaves from a little boy, a little child who apparently his mother packed his lunch, and he saw the need, and he thought he could help. And he didn't have much, but he gave everything he had, and it was a game changer. (laughs) One kid... One gift, one act of compassion in the hands of Jesus can change the world. I mentioned a book about Mr. Rogers a few weeks ago. It's called The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers by Amy Hollingsworth. She tells the story in that book of how several years ago Fred was invited to the White House. He accepted. And as the meeting was about to begin, he, he asked the president and others who had gathered if, if they would mind beginning with a moment of silence. I don't know if you know this about Mr. Rogers. He loved silence. In fact, on one of his TV shows to children, uh, his producer told him not to do it, but he said, I want the children to understand what a minute is like. And so he got an egg timer and, and he pulled it on a minute and they watched for 60 seconds in complete silence on TV, which nobody in their right mind would do, so that the children could understand what a minute feels like. He loved silence. During the silence, Mr. Rogers said to those in the East Wing, I'd like for each person to think of somebody who has helped them become who they are. It was kind of awkward, said some, all these high-profile, high-powered, big talkers sitting with Mr. Rogers in his sweater with their eyes closed, but who's going to say no to Mr. Rogers? After the meeting, one of the guards approached Fred in his white uniform and gold braids, said, Mr. Rogers, do you know who I thought of during the silence? Fred said, no, who? I thought of my grandfather's brother, he said. Just before he died, he took me to the basement in his home, and he gave me his prized possession, his fishing rod. I haven't thought about it, he said, in a long time, but when you said something about silence, I went back there in my mind. I was nine years of age, but I tell you that the bequeathing of that rod and reel before my great uncle died has had a profound impact on my life. In fact, that's the reason I still love to fish, and that's the reason I still love to love. There is no such thing as a small act of compassion. Every act creates a ripple effect that has no logical ending. One other word. I have a friend that I have met while walking at Radnor Park. Are you all aware that I, I like Radnor Park? I think, I think you're, all I talk about is basically Jesus and Radnor. I know that. I took this, I took this picture yesterday. I was walking about 7.30 in the morning. Uh, it's, that's my Eremos. That's my lonely place where I walk with God and and pray about life, and 
I've met so many people out there, and many of them are unchurched. And, and I met a man, his name is Dane Bryant, and he was with us last night. He gave me permission to share this. Former musical director of Olivia Newton-John, he's worked with others like Clint Black and Dolly Parton and Take Six and many others. He's a wonderful man, wonderful musician, pianist, and he told me his story. He grew up in Bristol, Tennessee, which many believe is the birthplace of country music, actually. I think that's where Tennessee Ernie Ford came from. It's right on the line there in Virginia. In fact, the line splits the town. He said, I started plunking on the keyboard when I was about five years old. I learned to play by ear before I could ever read a note. But he said, I I didn't really get serious about my music until I was in high school. I was a senior, and I had this music teacher named Mrs. Betty Lehman. And for some reason, she took an interest in me. After the bell would ring in the afternoon, she'd let me come in and sit down at the piano and sometimes practice for hours. And he said, one day, unbeknownst to me, she had slipped in a cassette tape deck beside the piano and punched record while I was practicing. I had no idea. And then a few days later, she sent that cassette tape to the music department at James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Can you imagine, he said, my surprise a few weeks later when I get a call from the director of the jazz band at JMU who's offering me a scholarship? He said it changed my life. The Bristol newspaper did a story on him a while back. I Googled it and found it. In the article, they interviewed Dane's father who said, whenever Dane comes back to Bristol, whenever he comes home, the first place he goes is to the Glenwood Cemetery to visit that grave and leave flowers for Miss Lehman. Dane said, a few years back, I was at home and I was rummaging around in the attic looking through some old boxes. And I found this old letter. It was still sealed. It was addressed to me from my high school, dated 1978, my senior year. And it was from her. I opened up the letter, and he said, this is what it said. Dear Dane, once in a while, there's a student who comes along that makes it all worthwhile. You're the reason I teach. Love, Miss Betty. That's a game changer. It is absolutely stunning to me, these little things that can change your life, like a fishing pole and a tape recorder and a couple of fish and some bread. And suddenly your world is different and your life is abundant. Little is much when God is in it. Bring me what you have, he says. And look what he does. This morning, I want to welcome you to Eremos. This is our place. This is our quiet place where in the stillness of worship, we remember the Miss Bettys. (laughs) We call their names, and we give thanks, and we know 
that their compassion and generosity are still having a profound impact on us. And because of that, we call them saints. And it's time to put on their shoes and rediscover the art of compassion. May it be so for us. In Jesus' name, amen.